The scripture passage today comes from Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then some of those standing near this, near heard this, and they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. We're coming to um, the center here of Peter's testimony. The Gospel of Mark is based on Peter's testimony. We're coming to the center of what he records about Jesus. We've seen Jesus lead his disciples to Jerusalem. We've seen him challenge the leaders there. We've seen him be betrayed by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane, arrested, handed over to the Romans, scourged, dragged out to uh, Golgotha, the hill outside Jerusalem, and here, after crucifixion, uh, Jesus' death. You know, this is... um, as we think about Easter, this is how we, how Christians, how the church prepares for Easter. And so, um, before I preach, before I talk about this, let's pray. Prepare our hearts for Easter and for what this means. Lord, um, we're approaching the darkest time in your life. Everything that you did for us. Uh, help us, Lord, as you helped us on the cross. Help us understand. Help this to be real. Help this to be a source of comfort, faith, hope, salvation, Lord, redemption in our life. Uh, Help us really to draw out of this story, this terrible dark story, uh, your gospel. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So we've seen Jesus go to the cross and be crucified. We looked at him uh, last Sunday, crucified by the soldiers, put up on display for all who passed by. And here we see that the land turned to darkness. Peter gives us a timetable here. Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. in the morning. At noon, three hours later, darkness fell over the land. And then at three, Jesus cries out and dies, breathes his last. Darkness in the Bible is a sign of God's absence. Before God creates the world, this is in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, and the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Before God intervenes, before God says, let there be light, before God brings order out of chaos, there is darkness. Darkness is a sign of God's absence, the absence of God's presence and the absence of God's blessing. 
when God begins the process of redemption, when he um, creates a covenant with Abraham, the man of faith, at that very moment, there is darkness. And in that darkness, God appears as a flaming torch, a blazing light, as the covenant is cut and the process of redemption begins. The last of the plagues in Egypt, when God brings um, the Israelites out of slavery and begins the process of turning them into a holy people, the last of the curses in Egypt is darkness, a sign of this cursed nature of Egypt enslaving God's people. And so here, again, darkness, a sign of God's absence, a sign of the curse, a sign of God's blessing not being present. And Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sekbekthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Crucifixions were marked by screams of rage and pain, wild curses, and the shouts of the despair of human beings contorted on a cross, pinned by iron nails. There are many accounts of this happening. It happened a lot. This was the Roman practice. But Jesus does not cry out that way. Jesus does not respond as most people respond. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Somebody ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. There was a sort of folk religion in Israel at the time. Elijah, in the Old Testament, is the prophet who, whose death is not recorded. Rather, he returns to heaven on a chariot in a whirlwind. And so, in popular culture, there was a belief that if you prayed to Elijah, he could show up and help you in a time of need. And some in the crowd, they hear Jesus saying, Aloy, Aloy, they think he's saying, Elijah, Elijah. They think that somebody's going to rescue him, that Jesus is a man in need, somebody who needs to be rescued. But although Jesus is there on the cross at the very extremity of human experience and existence, he was not there in need. He was exactly where he had chosen to go. He was doing exactly what he came in the world to do. As we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen how he repeatedly tells his disciples exactly what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. Jesus is not a victim here. Jesus is not surprised by what is happening to him. Jesus was a man on a mission, and this was his mission, and this was his destination. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not crying out in despair. He's quoting scripture. In fact, he's quoting Psalm 22. This is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults and shake, and shake their heads. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide up my clothes amongst them and cast lots for my garment. Jesus is not a victim, some hapless victim of Roman justice caught up in the big machine of cruelty. He is the prophesied Messiah. Psalm 22 is all about the Messiah and what's going to happen to him. There are no accidents in the Bible. There is no accidents in the world that God created. And it is no accident that Jesus is on the cross. By the way, um, my first uh, pastor, Tim Keller, would always point out at this stage that when Jesus was at the extremity, he quotes scripture. In fact, Tim would always say, if you cut Jesus, he bled scripture. Scripture was so much a part of him. You know, Jesus is called the word of God, just as scripture is the word of God. That when you pierce Jesus, what came out was scripture, which is why the word of God, scripture, is so valuable to us. If it was good enough for Jesus, even at the very extremity of human existence, it should be good enough for all of us. And it's important, particularly for Christians, to pay attention to Scripture. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Jesus died strongly. Typically, victims of crucifixion died of exhaustion. They lapsed into shock and unconsciousness through pain, through blood loss, through the difficulty of bleeding. With your arms pinned above you, you had to lift yourself up to breathe successfully. It was exhausting. That's how most people died. Unconscious, suffocating. That was not true of Jesus. He cried, al he cried aloud. He was still alert. He still had enough clarity to quote scripture. He died with purpose, with deliberate mission, not through the mechanics of Rome. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Centurion is a technical term. It means Roman officer. So this officer would have seen many crucifixions. This was the standard practice of Rome against rebels. And as an officer, he would have been responsible for overseeing and observing every step in Jesus' punishment. This was an eyewitness, expert witness, responsible for Jesus' death, and he didn't see a typical death. He something, saw something so extraordinary that he says, surely this man was the Son of God. He accurately recognized who Jesus was by the way he died on the cross. And verse 38, <clears throat> the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I'm pointing these points out, by the way, to show you, I hope, 
that we should not think of Jesus as a victim. Jesus was there deliberately. He was fulfilling scripture. He died strongly in a way that convinced the centurion that he was the son of God. And he died so that the curtain in the temple could be torn from top to bottom. What does that mean? Well, it is a sign. It is a symbol. It points us to a spiritual reality. The curtain divided the four courts of the temple from the inner sanctuary. The inner sanctuary was approachable only by priests who'd been consecrated. In fact, the Holy of Holies was only approached once a year by the chief priest. But now the curtain is torn. There is no barrier between the ordinary people and the presence of God. Jesus' death opened the way for ordinary people of faith to meet with and have a direct, unmediated relationship with God. Unmediated means they do not need anymore the mechanics, the technology of religion. You don't need priests. You don't need clergy. You don't need any institutional establishment. Men and women of faith can now approach God directly. Remember, Jesus taught us to pray, our Father. No other intermediary required. That's why Jesus went to the cross, to tear down that barrier, to let us in. But there's still that haunting phrase, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus is fulfilling scripture. He is doing God's will. He is fulfilling the mission for which he came into the world. Why would God abandon him? Why does God, why does Jesus on the cross call out that way? Well, we saw last week, Jesus wore a crown of thorns. The crown of thorns was a sign of the curse. Thorns came into the world when our relationship and the world's relationship with God was broken. And Jesus Christ on the cross becomes the curse in our place, becomes our sin, becomes all the ugliness in the world. In the Old Testament we read, If a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Up on that pole, Jesus was a curse, became the curse Remember, curse is the opposite of blessing, the opposite of God's presence, God's light. Or in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Or... This is to the Corinthian church. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God, those who are made right and have a good relationship with God. Jesus became a curse for us. What does that mean? Remember who God is. God is perfect in holiness, goodness, justice. God's presence is blessing. The absence of God's presence is curse or sin. You cannot have sin where God is, just as you cannot have darkness where light is. It's the reason that in the Old Testament, when Moses says, remember, Moses was the one chosen by God. Moses says to God, let me see your face. And God says, no, if you see my face, you're going to die. Because Moses, like all of us, is a human being. And human beings, in their very nature, are broken. Out of accord with God. Filled with death and not life. So what happens on the cross? Jesus, who lived a perfect life, takes on to himself, willingly, remember he's not a victim, he takes on to himself our sin. Sin means everything in us that is not pointed at God, that is not in relationship with God, that is not aimed at God. Takes on to himself our sin, our curse, all the ugliness of the world. So that Jesus on the cross literally becomes too ugly for God to have a relationship with. Becomes as ugly as the rest of the broken world. And God turns away from his son on the cross. But it was worse for Jesus. Remember, God is a trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a very mysterious thing to come to terms with, but at the heart of the idea is the idea that God is not just one big person, not some big man, some superhuman superhero, but the essence of God's nature is a community, a set of relationships, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Infinite love, from all eternity. A love that is so giving, so generous, has so much exquisite attention for each other that three become one. Three personalities are sustained by each other into one love. And Jesus, as part of the Trinity, experienced that from all eternity before he came into the world. That's who he is. That's who he was. God has always been Jesus' Father. And when Jesus prayed, he always prayed to his Father. In fact, that's how he taught us to pray. Our Father. Our Father and his Father together. And yet on the cross, for the first time, God is God. No longer Father. Jesus says, my God, my God. Not my Father, my Father. Why? 
because he no longer had the relationship of son to father. His father had turned away. It would be like being in love with somebody your whole life, and then that love turning away, that face turning away, the beloved turning away, and being abandoned. And not just abandoned. Remember where Jesus is. He's on a cross. The love that he'd known from all eternity was replaced not just by turning away, but by rejection, pain, the wrath of God's judgment on all the sin and ugliness of the world poured out on him, Jesus. It would be as if the caressing hand of a lover suddenly becomes a claw or a scourge or an iron spike driven into you by malice, hands and feet. It would be unimaginable. A few years ago, uh, I heard a discussion on, on the radio, and uh, there was a doctor talking about a patient. And the patient's mother was mentally ill when he was growing up. And I don't remember all the details. It was pretty miserable. I didn't listen to all of it. But there was one detail, one image that jumped out at me. It's always stuck with me. When this patient was a child, his mother would be perfectly loving and generous, and then out of the blue, without any warning, randomly she'd suddenly hurt him, burn him with a cigarette, cut him, stamp on him with her heels, terrible things. That's what he knew growing up. And the interviewer on the radio, he asks, so how did this patient cope with this? How did this patient deal with his mother doing these things to him when he was a child? And the doctor said, to avoid going mad, the child would run headfirst into the nearest wall just to knock himself out. It was the only solution that he knew. The pain was literally so unbearable that he knocked himself out. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus put himself through that? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom to let us in, you and me, to allow us to become part of the family and have the same relationship with God that Jesus had before the cross, to bring us home, to show us where we belong. That's why I did it. Now, I thought all this week, how do I end that, you know? We're left with that horrible, horrible image of Jesus on the cross, breathing his last. How do we deal with that as Christians? How should you and I deal with that? I think the only way is you have to see him there for you, not as some abstract, distant fact of history, but recognize why he did it. There's a strange, it's a weird story when you first come across it in the Old Testament. And it's about Israel as they are learning to deal with God. They've been rescued. They've been brought out of slavery in Egypt. They've been led to Mount Sinai and become a holy people. God has given them Moses to guide them. 
given them manna from heaven to feed them, and they're still not happy. The people grew impatient along the way. They're going through the desert with Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. This miserable food is manna, by the way. Same stuff that we're going to eat in a moment. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes amongst them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The snakes are the, are the fruit of the sin of the people. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a, on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look up at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anybody was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. You've probably seen those snakes on the side of ambulances. What is that story telling us? The antidote to our sin, our death, our problems is the snake, the venom, the source of the poison. And on the cross, Jesus becomes the snake, becomes the poison, becomes the curse and the venom. So that when you and I look at him on the cross, he's not there for somebody else. He's not up there for some weird ancient ritual. He's up there for you and for me. And specifically, the poison, the venom that is killing us, that is making our life a curse rather than a blessing, that is the source of the darkness in us and not the light. And when we look at him up there and we recognize he's there for us, specifically, the specific venom that's in your life and my life, then we can be healed. Then he becomes our savior. Then there is a possibility of turning away from things that are not of God and following Jesus and the things of God. Beginning our journey to the table, the family table, the Lord's table. All we have to do is look at him and not at the other things. Not at all the things in the world that clamor for our attention and say, follow me and I will save you. There's only one who went to the cross, who went to that extremity for you, who took all the venom in your life onto himself. And that was Jesus. And that's why he's a savior. On the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22 because he's fulfilling Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is about Jesus, the Messiah, on the cross. But after Psalm 22, there's another psalm, Psalm 23. I'm going to read that to you now. And as I do, I want you to think about what it means. Is it true for you? It leads to this table, by the way. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Is that your truth? Is that why you're here this morning? If you see Christ on the cross for you, then that is your destination. That's your life's journey. That's the promise and the hope of Christianity. It is the sweetness of the gospel in the center of this dark, dark event. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we can scarcely comprehend what it meant that you would go to the cross for us and what you experienced on that cross for us in our place. But, Lord, we thank you that you are willing to do it. We thank you, Lord, that you are not an example. You are a hero. You went where we cannot go and could not go so that we can follow you home. We thank you for that. And it's the reason we call you Lord. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.